you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Many of the memorial services which I conduct, I refer to this passage of Scripture. Uh, I had two recently, and it just dawned on me that I hadn't preached on this passage of Scripture in quite some time. I have referred to it, uh, and I won't get to finish the passage this morning. <clears throat> but I do want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, and we'll see how far we can uh, get in that passage of Scripture. It is a familiar passage of Scripture, and one of my prayers this week has been, Lord, don't let me be so familiar with it that I miss something that you want me to say. And Lord, don't let the people at Wake Chapel Church say, well, I've heard that passage, and I know all that's in there, so I'm going to take 30 minutes and rest in peace. Um, haven't seen the backside of my eyelids near enough, so I'm going to look at them during the service. Please don't do that. This is God's word, all right? This is not the word of your pastor. If this is the word of your pastor, you ought to leave now, okay? I believe that. I believe that. If it's not the word of God, what in the world is it doing coming from a pulpit? No place for it in the pulpit. This is God's word, and we honor it. We reverence it. We study it, and we ask God the Holy Spirit to help us to live by it. Pray with me, please. Father, we have open before us the Bible. It is such a common book in terms of the number of Bibles we have in our homes and the number of Bibles that have been published across America, across hundreds of years of time. And sometimes, Lord, the people that belong to you think they know it all. I've read it from cover to cover. I know what's in it. And yet we go our merry way and the Bible has no impact on the way we live. We live in a nation that has long since morally put the Bible out of its purview. All kinds of things are being done which are absolutely contrary to God's word. It does not please thee. Help us to be salt and light in this world. And help us to be sure that our relationship with you is right. And that we are looking for the events spoken of in this glorious passage of scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When it comes to the return of the Lord, I have found that there are basically uh, three kinds of people. I don't mean this in a derogatory sense. I just mean surveying the situation. When you talk about the return of the Lord, you find basically three kinds of people. One, you find cynics. People who say, you mean to tell me that you as an intelligent person 
believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth? The Apostle Peter said, people would say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since their fathers fell asleep, ever since the fathers in Israel fell asleep, uh, people continue as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, there has never been an interruption in human history. And because there has never been one, there will never be one. Jesus is not coming back. You have the cynics. Second, I have found that uh, you have some people who have made some preparation for the return of the Lord. They have some kind of uh, uh, belief system which moves them toward believing that, yes, since the Bible says it, Jesus is coming again. And yet... They are queasy about it. Uh, Their roots are down deep in the earth, in the life that we have here today. And so they're not too sure uh, about this matter of the coming of the Lord. But they are somewhat ready, made some kind of preparation. And then there's a third group. These are the folks who get up every morning before their feet touch the floor. They They think Jesus might come today. And they believe it. So three kinds of people. Our text this morning is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I suppose, I suppose that other than John three sixteen or Psalm 23, uh, this is probably one of the most familiar passages in the Word of God. If you've ever been to a funeral, probably you've heard this passage read at least. And if you've been in Wake Chapel Church, you've heard it preached on more than once. It might come as a surprise to some who are within the sound of my voice to know that 25% of the Bible was in the form of a prediction when it was written. 25% of the Bible was in the form of a prediction when it was written. Much of that has already been fulfilled. And hear me well, in every instance of fulfillment, every case of that fulfillment has been a literal realization of the prophecy given in the Bible. A literal realization of the prophecy given in the Bible. And so, with the promises yet to be fulfilled, what should we expect? We just come up to this point in history, and from this point forward, there there, there are no literal fulfillments of any more prophecies, right? Right? That doesn't sound reasonable to a thinking person. Jesus, excuse me, the author of the book of Acts said, this same Jesus, this same Jesus, not a different one, this same Jesus who is taken up into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, folks, listen to me. Either that's true or it's not. There's no in-between. There's no, well, maybe, maybe, whatever. No equivocation about it. This same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Now, let me just stop right here, okay? If you have trouble believing prophecy, then obviously Acts one eleven. 
doesn't compute with you. You don't believe that. What good is the Bible, if that's true? Some history lessons? But you don't know that's true either. Folks, Christian people today, maybe everybody doesn't know it, but we are shut up to the Bible is true or it's not. This is not a cafeteria. We cannot go through and, well, I like that verse. You know, I like John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world. I like that part of that verse anyway. But I don't like the rest. If that's the case, then we have no Bible that it's worth the paper that it's printed on. It's not reliable. We believe that it is reliable. We believe that it is true. We believe that the prophecies yet to be fulfilled will receive the same kind of fulfillment that the ones that have already been fulfilled have received. That is a literal realization of the words given to us on the pages of Scripture. By the way, if we can judge, and, and I'm not, I don't believe we can all the time, but if we can judge the importance of a doctrine by the number of the times that it is mentioned, then surely the matter of the coming of the Lord Jesus back to earth again is of preeminent importance. More is said about the return of Christ, hear me, than any other event in Scripture. More is said about Christ and His return than any other event in Scripture. Somebody asked me, well, what about creation? Well, that's mentioned a whole lot. Well, it's mentioned a whole lot more times than creation. Uh, and I could, uh, more than Abraham. And I could go on. Uh, let me just end this little list with the fact that the, the return of the Lord is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. 300 times in the New Testament. There are three, I don't know what to call them really, super important, I'll call them that, texts which deal with the return of the Lord. John 14, again, if you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard that passage read time after time after time. Talks about the return. If I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Either that's true or it's not. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all that's said there about the resurrection in particular. And then there's the passage that we have open before us this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I, I want to ask you this morning, um, most of the time, the only thing I ask of people who are present for any of my sermons, and you know that across the years, most that I usually ask is, stay awake, will you? Uh, this morning, I would like to ask a little bit more. I would like to ask you to walk with me through these verses. And I don't have time to give a full orb exposition, particularly of the last three verses here. 
But I'd like to ask you to walk through these verses with me with fresh eyes. Don't say, well, I've heard that before. Pastor, I I know that. I want to encourage in myself and in you a heightened zeal for what this text tells us. To believe it and to live like it. That's been my prayer to the Lord this week. So I would like to ask you to look through it with me. And let's get a fresh look at it for just a few moments. Why this truth? What was going on in the church of Thessalonica? The Apostle Paul included these verses, 13 to 18, in his letter to them. Well, I believe personally that uh, the Thessalonian church was about as close to a model church as you can find anywhere in the New Testament. I'm impressed with it. I'm greatly impressed with the church. Now, it wasn't perfect. There were some things wrong with the church in Thessalonica. For example, a number of the saints had gone to seed on this matter of prophecy. They had gone to extreme. Paul had taught them about the return of the Lord, and Paul expected it to occur in his lifetime. Look at five, uh, 4.15. For this we say unto you, the Bible word, that we who are alive, Paul expected this in his own lifetime. We who are alive. So he expected that. And so did the Thessalonians. Now, so far, so good. But because the Thessalonians expected Christ to come soon, many of them quit their jobs. Their reasoning seems to have been, well, If Jesus is coming, then why should I fool with this job that I don't like anyway? And before we say too much about that, I can't help but wonder, if we could set dates, we can't. Emphasis, we can't set dates. We don't know when. But if we could, and if we could say that Jesus is coming back February the 15th, how many of you would quit your job? I venture to say the roles of unemployment would increase significantly. (laughs) And that's what they were doing. But that wasn't the worst part of what they were doing. They were quitting their jobs. Jesus is coming, I quit. But what else they were doing was they, 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 they quit their job and started meddling in the affairs of other people. Look back at chapter 4, verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians. 4, verse 11. And I took this passage. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2, but I'm not going to go there for the sake of time. 4.11 says, And make, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Did you know, really, honestly, how many of you ever thought the Bible told you to mind your own business? Probably not. That's left to somebody else. I remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Moore. Man, she was a piece of work. Um, and um, I was, uh, I was a, a little bit rowdy. I don't know how many times that dear woman 
put up with me and four or five of us sat around together. She would look at, and, and those were the days when you got your hand held like this, and you know what happened next, don't you? A ruler, mm-mm-mm, you know, boy, she was good at that. Uh, but she would look at me, and she would say, and some of the rest of the guys, too, I wasn't the only one. She'd say, son, if you would mind your own business, and these were her words, you'd have all you can say grace over. And you know what? As I got older, I found out she's right. Paul was telling people, mind your own business. So there was confusion in the church. It was not a perfect church, but it was close to a model church. But their basic question, and this is out of their confusion also, their basic question was, what happens to those people who die before Jesus comes? See, Paul taught them that Jesus was coming. Their question was, well, what about my family? What about my friends who've died before Jesus comes? Legitimate question. Legitimate question. And that's what Paul has in mind as he writes verses 13 to 18. What, has, what happens to those who die before Jesus comes? That's what he's getting at. 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those, uh, excuse me, as do the rest which have no hope. A couple of things I want to point out about verse 13. The first one is the word asleep. Specifically, this is, of course, a reference to those who had died. Paul is speaking of their bodies. May I say to you, the Bible, nowhere, Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible nowhere knows anything about soul sleep. That's out of the imagination, the evil imagination of a man's heart, some man's heart, I don't know who. But there's nothing in the Bible about soul sleep to condone it whatsoever. He's talking about bodies that sleep in the grave. And the Bible says, for a child of God, for someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the moment they die, they are in the presence of the Lord. Thus endeth that epistle. They die in the Lord. They are immediately in the presence of the Lord. There's no in-between. This well-known euphemism, asleep, I first thought it originated with Christianity. It didn't. And I don't know why I thought that, because I had, I guess, forgotten some of the Old Testament. Uh, this word asleep was used for those who were dead in Judaism. You remember the book of Kings? It speaks of David. King David as sleeping with his fathers. So being asleep is not necessarily <clears throat> uh, a term that comes out of the New Testament. But having been used by our Lord in Matthew 5 and again in John 11, Christians readily accepted and began to use the term for those who died in the Lord. They were asleep. You remember in John, Jesus speaking to his men said, Lazarus is asleep. 
I personally can't think of a lovelier term to use for those who are deceased than asleep. You know, if you stop and think about it, there's a similarity between sleep and death. From the fact that sleep is temporary, death likewise is temporary. Sleep has a waking. Death has resurrection. It seems to be an apt term to use. There's one more thing to observe in verse 13, and that's the last part of the verse. Why did Paul want the Thessalonians to know about those who were asleep in Christ? He didn't want them to grieve as others who have no hope. Who have no hope of seeing them again. And if the one who is deceased is asleep in Christ and you are in Christ, you will see them again. You've heard me say many, many times, I'll stand in this pulpit and do like this and say, we have not seen, and I'll mention the name, of this person for the last time. I believe that. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's what God says. That's what God says. Paul says, I don't want you to grieve as people who do not have a hope of seeing their loved one again. Would you permit me uh, a little bit of an aside here? Once in a while, I hear someone say, If you're a strong Christian, you won't grieve. You won't shed tears. May I say to you, I don't believe that. We grieve at the loss of a loved one, but we don't grieve as though we'll never see them again. We will see them again, but we do grieve. Paul doesn't say here, don't ever grieve. Never shed any tears. Let me ask you something. What do we do when we're, when we, uh, when we're happy and when we're joyful? We laugh, right? Is anything wrong with laughing? I don't think so. And when we sorrow, when we grieve, what do we do then? It's normal to shed tears. And my dear friend, there is not one thing wrong with that let's get away if, we, if any of us have ever said it let's get away from saying well if you're a strong Christian you won't grieve you won't shed tears I, I won't put that as strongly as I feel I'll just say it's nonsense okay nonsense don't ever 
may I suggest, don't ever dry up the tear ducts and call that being a strong Christian. Hear me well. Jesus wept. Would you say, would you look at the Lord Jesus and say, well, he wasn't a strong Christian. What Paul is saying here is we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope of ever seeing their loved one again. This truth unfolds from here on in verse 14, and let me pick up a few things here. Um, Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If you would look at the second word in that verse, in my Bible, it's if. But that does not imply any doubt whatsoever. Actually, the word might well be translated since, or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, stop right there for a minute. Don't hurry past that. Jesus died, and that is a historical fact. Not only did he die, but he rose again. That is a historical event. Together, these form the foundation of our hope. Jesus came to this earth. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, the birth of a baby in a manger. Why did Jesus come? Well, if you read the book of Hebrews, Jesus came to die. That's what the book of Hebrews says. He came to die. He was raised from the grave. Those two things form the foundation for our faith. If he didn't die and he didn't come out of the grave, dear people, um, to move over into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians and perhaps an Easter context, if he didn't die and if he was not raised again, we are of all people to be pitied. The apostle says that we are of all people to be pitied more than anybody else. If he didn't come and die and he wasn't raised from the we of all people on God's green earth are to be pitied. For these are the foundation of our hope. Surely he died, and just as surely he came forth from the grave. And with that same certainty, now listen, you know, it's kind of interesting to me because sometimes I find people who say, yes, I believe he died. Yes, I believe that uh, um, he rose from the dead. But I don't believe the last part of that verse, that he'll come bringing those who've fallen asleep in Jesus with him. That doesn't make any sense to me, does it you? You know, we believe this, we believe this, but we don't believe the next part. Fundamentally, that when Jesus comes, he will bring with him those who've died in the Lord. That's the answer to the Thessalonian problem. That's their key problem. And that's why Paul wrote these verses. To answer that question for them. I want you to note how certain this is. Again, look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
We also believe that, wait a minute, that's not my Bible. Is it yours? See, the certainty of this is not a matter of faith. I read it the wrong way on purpose. It is not a matter of faith. He will come again. Who's responsible for that? Who's doing that? Even so, God will bring with him. So it's not a matter of we believe that he died and rose again and we believe he's going to do this. The we believe in the second part is not there. Why? Because it is absolutely certain God is going to do this. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Before I move on just a little bit further, um, would you notice? Fall asleep in Jesus. That name directs our attention to his humanity. That is the name of a human being. And it calls our attention to all the experiences that he had on this earth and to his death and resurrection. These things happened to Jesus. But did you notice this? Did you read this carefully? In all these verses where Paul uses this beautiful figure of sleep, our text doesn't say that Jesus slept. Look at it. It doesn't say that Jesus slept. It says that Jesus died. Jesus died. What's the difference? It's because he experienced our death when he died. He bore our sin. Listen to me. When Jesus died, he bore my sin. When Jesus died, he died bearing your sin. He died paying the penalty for our sin. He experienced death and all of its horror. He endured death the worst it could possibly be. But by his dying for his people, he translated death into sleep. Therefore, child of God doesn't die. He sleeps in Jesus until he is brought back with Jesus when he comes again. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated his victory over death. And as I said a moment ago, he transformed death into sleep with the blessed assurance of awakening, resurrection. May I ask you, Are you afraid of dying?
You don't need to be. Not that anybody wants to die. But we don't need to be afraid of it. We can have hope. You can be ready for your death, your sleep, or for Christ's return. Now hear me well. How can I be ready for death? How can I be ready to go to sleep in Jesus? How can I be ready for His return? Well, to be in Jesus, to have Him as your Savior, is the answer. If you are in Christ, you're ready to go to sleep in Jesus. And you're ready for His return. For He will bring with Him all who've died in Christ. I figured I was going to get down to about this time and just get about halfway through the sermon and and that's all the time that I have. Let me very quickly just ask you to look with me at uh, the rest of the verses here. Verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now there are three things that happen here. Three unique sounds with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. I believe all of those refer to the majesty and honor involved in his return. A shout, voice the archangel and the trumpet of God. Verse 16b. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who die in the Lord, he takes care of. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Those who died in Christ precede those who are alive and remain. And then verse 17b closes with this. Caught up together to meet them with the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Caught up to meet them in the air. I said earlier, there's going to be a reunion. Without being too emotional, uh, my parents had three sons. I never knew, neither did my brother, our youngest brother. He died just a few days after his birth. He had no opportunity to trust Christ as his Savior. He was just a baby, a few days old. And we believe, too, based on the example of the Old Testament, that Folks who died like that will be in heaven. I believe 
one day I'm going to meet my youngest brother. I wonder this morning. Are you ready? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? I'll close with this. This passage, 1 Thess 4, should have a calming influence on hearts that are troubled. It should have a calming influence on hearts that are troubled. John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This passage should have a cleansing influence on the sinning heart. John says, this is a purifying hope. And it should have a comforting influence on sorrowing hearts. If you look at 4.18 of 1 Thessalonians, therefore comfort one another with these words. My prayer is that at least these verses will be a calming influence on stirred hearts, troubled hearts, should be a cleansing influence on sinning hearts and a comforting influence on sorrowing hearts. May God speak his truth to my heart and to yours. Shall we pray? Father, what what a glorious hope is set before us. Thank you. May the Spirit of God be our teacher in taking these things that Paul has written and giving to us great understanding to them. And enable us to greatly heed his admonition and his instruction. Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning that's never trusted Christ, that they may do that before they leave this place. And I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts. And again, I ask, Lord, help us to be in this world salt and light, standing up for your truth, the truth of the Bible, and doing so unashamedly. We make our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Alan Cotton is our deacon of the day. It had escaped my mind right quick. Of course, a lot of things escape my mind anymore. <laughs> Don't laugh. Uh, Alan, it's been a good day in the house of the Lord.
uh, if you will pray and thank God for the guests that are here. By the way, if we have anybody here uh, who doesn't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the table out to my left in the foyer. You would be a blessing to us if you don't have one, if you take one. Uh, we put them there just for this purpose. Uh, so please avail yourselves of one of the Bibles. If you don't have one at home, if you don't have one that's your own personal Bible, please take one. Much to be thankful for, much to pray for. Alan, if you'll lead us, please. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it brings us great joy that uh, we have come here today to praise you and uh, sing songs to you and listen to the word. And uh, we've got new members today, Lord, and we've got guests, Lord, and we just thank you all for everything you do in our lives. Thank you, Father, for this church family. Help us, Lord. Uh, give us new energy, Lord, to go out through this week uh, praising you and telling others about our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. We love you and thank you. We ask that you be with us and help us, Lord. Give us much wisdom and good health. And help us, Lord, to encourage others, Lord, to trust in Jesus. In King Jesus' name we pray. Amen.